Guanyin Guanlin, which is welcome in Mandarin. Welcome to the Daddy Unscripted podcast. My name is Tim Wheaton. I am the creator of Daddy Unscripted and the host of the podcast as well. Thank you very much for joining me today for this episode. Today, a fantastic guest. I'm very happy to finally have this conversation come to be. We have been talking about this for a long time, Brando and myself and his people. I'm not making that up. This was very much a have my people talk to your people, though my people was just me talking to his people, and we finally made it work. So Brando is co-founder of cashortrade.org with his brother Dusty. So he will get into that whole story, where that evolved from. It's actually really cool, and I talked with him a little bit afterwards about how great it is that the thing, the event that led them to create what they created was something that they were actually able to do something about. And it wasn't just me or you or somebody else just sitting at home, very frustrated and angry, not able to really, quote unquote, do something about it. And that he and his brother were able to create this really great program for not only selling and buying tickets, but for doing so at face value and creating the community kind of around it. It's really great. So we will get into that. But before I get too far, let me remind you that the Daddy Unscripted podcast is a very, very proud burgeoning member of the Osiris podcast family or the Osiris podcast network. So let me tell you a little bit more about that through this. Osiris. Hi, this is Jordan with Spafford, and the podcast you are listening to is part of the Osiris Network. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with podcasts and live experiences about artists and topics you love. Sign up for the newsletter at osirispod.com to stay in the loop. Okay, and now we will get into my conversation about Brando Rich, the man that he is today. And all of the things that he has done with his life to this point and where they are still going. So here is Brando Rich. All right. Well, we are here today with Brando Rich. Brando, you are the, would you say, co-founder of Cash or Trade? Yes. Okay. And founded with your brother, and uh, we'll get a lot into that, but basically, Brando is part of the uh, revolution against against the evils of ticket scalpers, and even I guess would you say that you're a little bit in revolt against the machine of Ticketmaster as well? No. I would say we're just more providing an alternative for real fans to come together and support one another. Cool. It's no hidden concept that fans are pretty upset and bothered about the current industry and its practices. Really, that has been going on since, wow, I'm trying to think of a good year, maybe 1993 or four, as I recall it, uh, was when around the time that Pearl Jam was kind of one of the big beginnings of the rage against uh, that machine. But they definitely created the upstart revolt against, you know, everybody was, that was what you had. Well, before that, and you might be too young for this, Brando, but I'm sure you know of it because of your um, knowledge of the industry. But there was Ticketron, when I was even younger than that, uh, which didn't, I don't think, it, I think Ticketmaster just basically gobbled everything up and just became a monopoly. And then that was the thing, like you had Ticketmaster and that was kind of it. And now there are definitely more options, sort of. There's more ways to get your tickets and whatnot. But again, we'll get way more into that. I will definitely be picking your brain and letting you tell all of your fantastic stories of how that was created and the whys and the hows of it and 
what it has become now, which is tremendous to say the least, like from what the beginnings of what you first saw that as and what it is now is awesome. So, so we'll go way back and go back to your paternal history. So whatever that means for you, I will let you kind of tell that story so we can learn more about who Brando Rich is. All right. My dad grew up in uh, southern New Hampshire, born and raised. I was born in Hollis, New Hampshire, and stayed there for the first 18 years of my life. My dad, like many, was hardworking, uh, devoted family man, um, you know, put in a long, lot of hours doing the, the hard commute to Massachusetts, working for his family. You know, weekends were spent uh, maintaining the house, chopping wood, mowing the lawn, that sort of stuff. There was myself, um, the youngest, uh, my brother Dusty, who is the co-founder of Casher Trade, and then my sister uh, is the oldest, Dominica. Um, so I was the third and um, lived a pretty great childhood, to be honest. Pretty mm-hmm. thankful and blessed for that. Grew up on a cul-de-sac just in New England, you know, great seasons and um, just sort of a good time growing up uh, on BMX bikes, skateboards, um, doing martial arts, break dancing at one point, um, <laughs> you know, all those things, dirt biking. Yeah, we were pretty outdoorsy and just involved in whatever we could be. <clears throat> My parents were always very supportive of all the things we were interested in. Um, so that was great. I guess you could say just moving into sort of the music side of my life, 14 years old started, uh, you know, or maybe I could go even a little earlier than that. Uh, junior high, you know, junior high school dances, always loved to dance, maybe listening to a lot of hip hop around that time. And, um, then my sister was getting into the Grateful Dead, so she'd be playing Sugar Magnolia around the house. Mm-hmm. We'd find ourselves uh, singing it. But our cousin, Lisa, uh, she was a bit older than Dominica, and uh, she was uh, the first one into the dead, so it kind of got passed down. And uh, so then, you know, around 14, we started seeing live music. We went to... Um, Fish um, might have been my first live show, um, wow. l- larger show at least. And what year are you talking about here? Uh, this is May 8th, 1993 at the UNH Fieldhouse. Cool. I know that show because that's my brother's birthday. So I actually have heard that one for sure. Yeah. Excellent show. Crazy set list. I didn't quite understand it at the time. Um, but I came to, uh, to be honored that we were at that event. Mm -hmm. So then sometime after that, I think we went down and hit Lollapalooza in Rhode Island and that was an experience. So 93, you're talking the headliners, is that Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam? Primus. Okay. Yeah. I remember, uh. My really my first and only time crowd surfing at a concert, (laughs) massive crowd and people were just, we just like grab onto somebody and they toss us in the air and I'd point my finger on where I wanted to go and, (laughs) and they would carry me wherever I needed to go. (laughs) So we could go from one side of the venue to the next in like just a couple of minutes across the crowd. It was pretty wild. Uh, Dusty actually got thrown on stage and then uh, security came to grab him and he like jumped back into the crowd. Oh, man. Uh, So we were just getting started, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I'll say with a with quite a start there. Yeah, that was the summer. And then uh, fall began and the Grateful Dead decided to play six nights at Boston Garden in September. So we felt compelled to head down there for that. Mm, The old Boston Garden, even. Yeah. So around this time, you know, just personal life, 
Um, my brother and I were teaching a lot of martial arts, black belts at the time, and um, started uh, being like assistant instructors at our at a, a few different karate schools. So that's what we were doing pretty much all the time outside wow. of school and music. Our high school was a lot like Dazed and Confused yeah, in many ways. Uh, super fun, could get away with a lot, kind of knew the ropes very well, or learned the ropes quickly, I suppose. Yeah. So let's see. At that point, we were getting pretty wild. Life at home was a little rough. Growing up in a small town, the cops really had nothing to do except bust high school kids. Mm-hmm. So they like tapped a phone at the school. And no way. was like listening in to like high schoolers talk about parties. Wow. And uh, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. And they knew our names and uh, we were getting picked up by them almost every weekend, every other weekend. <laughs> it got to be really crazy at one point. Wow. Uh, so my parents, needless to say, were uh, on edge with us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we were getting grounded for months at a time. And then we'd get off groundation and then go hang out with some friends in the woods at a bonfire and the cops would show up. Oh my gosh. We were, you know, not old enough to really get in trouble for anything. Right. Uh, so just to annoy our parents, they would bring us in and call up our parents to come get us, which they never enjoyed doing. Of course. So things were a little rough, but uh, we knew we had to see the Grateful Dead. So we uh, we left a note and uh, we busted out. Drove down to Boston. Wow. Slept under a bridge that night after our first dead show in Boston, which was quite an experience. And you guys are how old at this time? Well, my brother was 16 at this point. He's only 15 months older than me, but I was 14. So it was like in the middle there. Oh my gosh. And this is in the winter in Boston. Uh, Uh, Yeah. yeah. Fall. fall. Yeah, late September. I think it was like that. 24th or something through the 30th or yeah i have that right but um amazing shows and just quite an experience to step out into that crowd you know boston or just a a grateful dead show in the city was uh, surreal yeah you know full-on drum circles and stage being burned and you know people lining the streets selling things and uh, Hare Krishna's dancing down the streets. And uh, it was unlike anything else. You know, lots of weed being traded in the McDonald's. And it's like awesome. the overpass is right there. So it's just like cars are driving over this crazy party. You know? Yeah. Uh, Hippie Town USA is yeah, down there and yeah. people are going to work. Totally. And you're just like under this bridge, like in somewhat of rainy weather, just kind of figuring it out. It was like, all right, get your street smarts on. Yeah, for sure. Your your eyes must have been like immensely wide open that entire time. Certainly. But it was, you know, we met a lot of great people and uh, really good community of folks. And, uh, you know, lots of friends were there, too. But uh, it was also the first time I dabbled in some drugs and, uh, you know, some of that. Grateful Dead played uh, Beatles' Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Excellent song. It was pretty, quite the experience, I guess. And and not to get too, like, I mean, I'm enjoying and thinking about the excitement, but this is pre, absolutely pre-cell phone, maybe around the time of pagers or just a little before that, what are your parents? Have you had a conversation as an adult with your parents about this or? Um, yeah, we've talked about a lot of this. Uh, <laughs> they've heard about it over the years. Yeah, for sure. And what are they doing at home with a note? They're 14 and 16 year olds down in Boston. I think they were pretty upset. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think they knew we were in Boston. I don't think we said we were going there. Oh. <laughs> so 
I think they were just pretty upset that we left. And, you know, we came back and uh, we still just kind of camped out in the woods and a lot of apple orchards in uh, Hollis. So we would go there for lunch and snack on apples. (laughs) But it just so happened with the way that school fell that there was a day off uh, like midweek. And then so we saw that first show then. And then we felt we had to get back down there. So we went back down for the weekend shows without a ticket and uh, was able to put our finger in the air for the first time and get a ticket. So that was like a wild experience, seeing people holding signs, cardboard that said, you know, need a miracle and yeah, um, cash or trade for your extra. Yeah. Um, so we ended up finding some cardboard and some pens and made our own signs and got in one more night that's awesome that was that was kind of the beginning of it i mean it was fish and you know certainly Lollapalooza there and and the dead i think we actually squeezed in a little bit of horde tour as well oh yeah good old horde tour yeah gosh blues traveler there was a little bit of a rusted root in there yeah um i think when i saw it out here it was lenny kravitz and Blues Traveler, Rusted Root, Dave Matthews Band, Mm-mm. and maybe somebody else I can't remember. But Yeah, I remember coming back once we sort of made up with my parents and they let us back in the house. <laughs> uh, you know, we expressed to them that we loved live music and we needed to go see more. And we had tickets to go see um, Crosby, Stills, and Nash at Great, huh. Great Woods in Massachusetts. And they... Uh, they let us go. So we went down there and saw them. It was a good show. I think the next thing, I don't know if my timeline is perfect here, but close. New Year's Fish, Worcester Centrum, 1993. That was kind of the highlight. Fish has just started going national in 1994 with the album Hoist. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was just an amazing show. They, I, I don't know if they'd ever packed an arena that large before. And just the energy was through the roof. And it was like one song into the next. And uh, Trey did the Down With Disease jam before Down With Disease came out. So that was like pretty hot to hear this jam. Mm-hmm. Nobody really knew what it was yet. Um, so that's how we finished 1993. And we were kind of off to the races. So... Um, that's a little bit of the history about how we began with live music and and what what was your parents did they empathize at all with that like were they music lovers or was this basically you got it from your cousins into your family and your sister and um my parents were never like huge music people mm-hmm. but they saw how much we really enjoyed it my sister was a little bit, little bit older than us, so she was able to um, start seeing more shows. I believe she saw Fish in 1992 at Holman Stadium in Nashua, New Hampshire, uh, mm. where they opened for Santana. And, uh, oh, yeah. You know, these were shows that, like we wanted to go to, but like we weren't quite old enough yet. So she was starting to see a little bit more. I think she probably went to the Portland show on that fish new year's run um but our parents wouldn't let us go that far but they would let us do worcester centrum so that was the compromise Mm -hmm. so we did that night yeah i think they were pretty supportive in how much we really enjoyed it i'm sure it was hard for them to let us go to so many of these yeah at young age um i think they probably felt somewhat better about it knowing that our sister was going to them as well Mm-hmm. And your parents, what what years were they born? Just so I'm piecing together like their age range while this is happening. Uh, so my dad's 75. My mom, she's 71. Okay. So they're born in the 40, late 40s? Yeah. Okay. You know, we had some of our friends who I remember like their mom was like 30 when we were like early teenagers you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, like uh so there was a different dynamic there you know i think my parents were a lot more traditional in a lot of their ways and teachings yeah 
as hard as it was for us during those times to sort of have more of this fifties raising, uh, mentality. Mm-hmm. It also, you know, they really instilled some really great values, uh, in us, you know, very driven and, uh, never give up and love your family no matter what. Yeah. It's, it's always interesting to me that piece of it, of what, today's parents have brought to the table from uh, their own parents, whether it be good or bad and what they are passing along, which I think is to some extent is a little bit more difficult as we continue to go on in, well, I guess on this planet because the distraction level is so much higher and Mm. the struggle for attention can be more difficult for a parent than than it was way back when you know my parents didn't really have to tell me to put anything down and pay attention (laughs) pretty much i mean it was yeah you know sometimes it was turn off your walkman or put down your book or whatever like that but there wasn't really as much inundation of technological driven noise i guess i don't even know yeah to say it Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the internet, you know, didn't really start until, you know, gosh, what, 95? I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't think we had a computer that that connected to the internet until, um, it might have been 94, a Tandy computer that had a a 2400 baud dial-up modem Mm -hmm. uh, with America Online. Yeah, with Netscape or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. even before Netscape, I was connecting to those uh, those news groups, and I found rec.fish.music. Mm. I have mm-hmm. that right. I always get that. I forget. What I think that's correct. Yeah, string is uh, that handle. But um, you know, my sister and and her boyfriend and and her friends were uh, listening to a lot of music and a lot of great tapes, trading tapes. So I got into that. And started finding people on these news groups and were sending like, you know, 11, 11 packs of XL2S mm-hmm. cassettes, Maxell cassettes out to random people. I had no idea who they were. Yeah. And they would mail back, you know, 11 of these things recorded for me. Yeah. Were you going nationwide with, with your stuff or were you kind of staying in your area um well i think i started just trading with like you know local people um mm-hmm. some friends had a great collection and who got it from a buddy of theirs brother who had like a room full of dat recordings wow um who was just really into it so it was always like highest quality to get it from him yeah so i was like a couple tiers down from that but once I figured out the news group thing, I, I definitely went a little bit more nationwide with that. I was mailing yeah. tapes all over and, you know, bought one of those wooden slatted yeah. wall case things. Yeah, yeah I, I think had a it couple holds of those. like a hundred or something. And yeah. I was so picky. I had to listen to every tape that came in before I could fill out the J card because mm-hmm. um, I had to make sure that it was right. Yeah, so, there's a lot. Of yeah, hours. every once in a while you'd get those ones, and you'd be like, oh, "What am I going to do with this? Yeah. He, what is this filler? This is awful." <laughs> yeah, some kind of filler. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you you switch the tape at the wrong spot, and oh, I remember all yeah. that. And like just hours of like needing to track out some of like the DAT recordings weren't tracked. So like I remember yeah. my buddy needing to like get up in between every song to like track them out. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was kind of a interesting time of music, and it was a lot of like with headphones and 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 really listening closely, you know, hearing yeah. things that you know sometimes you even miss during a live show. Yeah, um, yeah, it's funny. I don't listen to a lot of music with headphones hardly at all anymore, mm-hmm. and there have been a couple of times that I have, and you're right, there's so many things, especially in some of those good dead boards that you pick up of them 
talking between songs and whatnot that was always a big part of the reason that I was a such a soundboard snob because I loved hearing, you know, I would turn the volume up between those songs just to hear what they were maybe saying to each other or changing the set list or whatever. Yeah, yeah totally. So you guys are embedded in all that during high school. Did you, I guess, did you, A, did you go to college and B, did you stay local? So at this time, you know, later years in high school, uh, Dusty was doing a lot of wrestling, sort of like in between getting in trouble (laughs) and Mm -hmm. partying. We were also kind of killing it too. We were doing decent in school, but uh, Dusty was like the first state champ in wrestling and uh, ended up becoming like seventh in the nation for wrestling. Wow. In between that, he was teaching martial arts. I was also became an instructor of a school and was leaving high school at like one in the afternoon and would go right there to start teaching classes up until like nine at night. And we did that like six days a week. Like even on Saturday mornings, we were teaching like, you know, preschoolers and stuff. And then we had like fighting class on Saturday afternoon. So, you know, as much as we were having fun, we were also working a lot Mm -hmm. and pretty focused and, and making decent money too. So when it came time to graduate, you know, my dad, again, being as supportive as my parents were, um, you know, offered to possibly buy uh, a karate school for us that we could run Wow! or help us go to college. And uh, as much as we love the martial arts, we knew it was time to sort of experience different things. So we chose to go to college in Vermont. Mm. I was pretty focused on environmental things at the time um, when we weren't seeing shows or doing karate or sports, we were hiking. Um, We grew up in the White Mountains of New Hampshire and uh, really found ourselves deep in those woods Mm -hmm. many a nights. So, uh, you know, the environment had a big impact on me Mm -hmm. and I knew I wanted to go to school for environmental science and I felt like Vermont was a realistic place to go. So we both applied and I went to uh, Johnson State College and uh, Dusty uh, started off at Norwich University because they had a good wrestling program. I should mention that during this time, um, in, in sort of later high school, uh, my father became sick. It was very trying on our family, but pulled us very close. You had mentioned having beepers. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, we at that point, we had to be really close to home because uh, my dad could get a call from the hospital at any time. So uh, Dusty and I got beepers um, so our mom could get in touch with us at the drop of a hat. Mm. But yeah, all pre-cell phone. Yeah, just to throw that in there. So then, you know, my dad had a liver transplant. Oh, wow. Around that time, you know, we think it was something that he worked with in his job. Mm -hmm. So that was a really, really tough time for us as a family. But my dad's strong as hell. And uh, we we got through it together. And uh, that was sort of another reason why we just wanted to be close for college. Yeah. So Vermont seemed like a real logical place to go. Mm -hmm. I remember that summer. A lot of our friends graduated college and went on fish tour, but we had to pass that up because we wanted to be close to home. And uh, I think we did the fish tour the following summer after that, the first summer of college, I guess, freshman year. Moved into Johnson State, put down my bags, gave my parents a hug, and fish was playing Clifford Ball Festival in New York. Yeah. So I was like, college is great. Yeah, yeah. I headed out there and had one of the most amazing weekends of our lives. Oh, gosh. And then uh, started our lives in Vermont and uh, been here ever since. And being completely, I mean, I'm 100% ignorant on those distances. How close were those two schools to one another? Uh, They were about an hour. Okay. Um, So Dusty did a couple years there. and. I was having a great time in Johnson and 
it was a lot more regimented because it was uh, Norwich was um, part military. So it wasn't quite the, you know, funnest vibe for a so-called civilian student. So uh, eventually Dust made the decision, you know, wrestling or freedom. <laughs> so he uh, headed on down to UNH where he transferred for the, the last two years. But we still saw each other a lot, you know, not too far away, about three hours. To this day, you guys are obviously kept close by your business that you own slash run together and whatnot. Are you guys still geographically very close? Yeah, he actually lives uh, not far, 20 minutes away. Oh, cool. After UNH and I graduated Johnson, Johnson State, we kind of were like, all right, what's next? What are we going to do? And Dusty went to school for business and I went to school for environmental science. And uh, I had been involved in creating, uh, institutionalizing uh, campus recycling programs um, at Mm. Johnson State College, as well as when I I transferred for a year to go to Humboldt State in California. Oh, yeah. So I was involved in that over there. It's like the director of education for it. And, uh, yeah, so when we, after college, we decided to get together and, and create an environmental business where we could um, help businesses become uh, sustainable in their practices. Hmm. As we started getting into that, uh, Dusty sort of led the state's green hotels program um, that helped hotels like create goals uh, to reduce waste. And, um, you know, they, they got like 50 or more hotels on the program. And uh, so we were kind of on our way with that, and we realized that the internet was beginning, and that no matter what, we were going to need a website. And we knew we couldn't pay for a website, so I was always really pretty decent with computers, so I thought I would make my own. And I had made a couple a couple websites, like activist websites, uh, I, should, I should mention mm-hmm. in my college years, I became pretty politically active and staged at a number of protests and demonstrations. But yeah, so we started designing websites and um, just sort of as a side thing, um, thought it'd be helpful knowledge. And then next thing we started getting hired for projects. And uh, unfortunately, we never continued the environmental business. But we were enjoying life in northern Vermont, skiing, snowboarding whenever we wanted to, and um, created a web design company. Mm. And we did that for roughly 17 years. It went well. Uh, we built out some environmental ideas that we were going to launch, like Eco Marketplace and different concepts like that, getting into the e-commerce world. But uh, yeah, it wasn't until 2009 when, you know, Fish came back from hiatus and uh, we went to go buy tickets and they got sold out immediately, of course. Yeah. But what shocked us the most is that they were on secondary market sites for upwards of $2,000. Yeah. Seems normal. Yeah. It's normal now, you know. and. Having seen shows since 93, you know, we always needed to stand in line at a brick and mortar box office. Yeah. I mean, actually, that first fish show at UNH Fieldhouse, um, we were late to buying tickets, my brother and I. So we went to a broker uh, where it was Mm -hmm. like a travel agent. Mm -hmm. We like sat down with a guy at his desk and like bought uh, two tickets for $50 a piece that were only. 1875 at the time right so the first tickets we bought we were scalped (laughs) but you know we were doing web design throughout those years and uh listening to howard stern in the office and uh we noticed around 2004 StubHub started and Mm -hmm. um, howard stern was just moving to serious radio so there was a lot of uh they they marketed heavily on Howard Stern and it was like a crucial time because that was big in the media that, Oh my gosh, he's moving the satellite radio. Yeah. Yeah. Birth of satellite radio, you know? 
so then like, you know, between 2004 and 2009, we, we kind of laid low in Vermont, um, saw some local music, uh, did a lot of skiing and snowboarding. And we actually started teaching karate again to like our friends, kids up here. And it wasn't until 2009 that we bought those tickets or tried to buy those tickets. We actually got shut out of those Hampton shows that we were like, something's changed. And what we realized was that tickets were now all online. Mm -hmm. And that was the difference. And, you know, I know we all get pretty angry at like the so-called scalpers and, and really it's more just that the industry has created a space for a broker to become quite sophisticated. And, and now they're armed with high tech hacking programs. Yeah. It's all bot related, probably scalper bots. Yeah. That's what they're called or what people are calling them that have been known to buy thousands of tickets within the first two minutes that they go on sale. So it's just really like made them super sophisticated and um, be able to exploit the industry and the market. And they've turned to these secondary reseller sites to to dump them where they could hide their face, provide no transparency and hide their identity and mark up their tickets as much as they want and feel okay about ripping you off and Basically, they just they score so many tickets that they make their most money off of the highest priced seats. And, and often mm-hmm. they just end up dumping the rest or just not even selling them, which is why a lot of sold out events uh, still have empty seats, which is a loss to the venue. Which is crazy. Yeah, which is so crazy. But yeah, it totally makes sense. Yeah, I mean, if a thousand people are missing at a venue, imagine the loss in in beer and food sales and and merchandise, Mm -hmm. you know, night after night. So, you know, it was was a time that we realized that, like, not only were the artists getting affected and the venues were getting affected, and obviously the fans were affected and super jaded and, you know, upset. And um, if there was ever an industry that has nipped at the heels of its customers for so long, you know, that's in dire need of disruption is the ticketing industry. Yeah, it is crazy that it's gone on for for so long. Yeah, I mean, it's evolved. You know, there's been a lot of evolution, but right at this point where we sit today, it's nearly impossible for a fan to score, you know, a face value ticket to a high demand event. You know, a certain number of people do score, but a lot of them, you know, a good percent of, you know, every venue ends up on these secondary sites. And often these shows go sold out within like, you know, what seems to be 60 seconds. Yeah. A couple years back, you know, just to put some validity to all this. The New York Attorney General saw something fishy going on when the uh, Pope came to visit New York City. Mm -hmm. And uh, the tickets were free, but people were scalping them like crazy for the Pope. And, you know, he was like, what, something's going on here. And he launched an investigation and um, a couple months later came out with some serious data and found like certain companies were attempting to charge tickets up to 200,000 times a day. Wow. Because the bot programs are just like going, you know, they're just running. Right. And um, it wasn't soon thereafter that, you know, the governor and senators got involved. And eventually in 2016, um, President Obama signed the first federal bill against bot programs running in the United States. Hmm. You know, the only trouble there is that a lot of these run overseas and Two, they're really hard to catch because they're using proxy servers. Mm-hmm. And three, it's just there's really you know no funding or regulatory agency put in place to like you know watch over, make sure this isn't happening. But it, it was sort of a statement where the government said, okay, like we don't feel that this is fair to the consumer. 
the Bots Act, the Better Online Ticketing Act. Oh, really? That's what it actually is. Yeah. And like, what is the in a music industry that also has evolved massively and is so much different? I mean, really, live shows are aside from merch. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that that's the only place, but because of quote unquote album sales kind of going the wayside live performance is such a huge chunk it would seem definitely but but they're still making their money because somebody's buying that ticket so are they just kind of in a look the other way because they're already getting paid and they don't really care the artists yeah well i mean i know the artists maybe do but the the record companies themselves has there been any work on their side I don't believe so. I mean, the rec- it's not really an issue for the record companies. Um, it's more like the management companies who, who manage the artists. Mm-hmm. Many artists since Pearl Jam have, have really stood up ag- against these practices. Yeah. You know, I think Nine Inch Nails just launched a, a tour where you had to stand in line to buy a ticket. Yeah. That you couldn't do it online. Yeah. That was pretty cool seeing people lined up. Yeah. You know, a lot of bands have done different things at different times uh, to make it more difficult. I think Ticketmaster, one reason of why they don't mail tickets out until two weeks before the event is to try to cut down on some of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there are things, there's been practices where you need to show up with your ID and credit card. But, you know, there's a lot of backlash on that because, like, a father can't buy a ticket for his daughter mm-hmm. or just, like, you know, things like that. A friend can't have an extra for a friend unless they're walking in together. Right. So it, it does create a lot of bottlenecks. And and thankfully, though, we are in a time of major innovation and the ticketing industry is, is evolving quick. And um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of new technology coming out on the primary market, such as ticket transferring, where you can transfer the ticket through the primary market website to a new owner. And the original barcode is void. And the person who receives the transfer has a fresh new barcode all their own. That's a big step to eliminating some of the fraud that occurs as far as people selling fake tickets, you know, it certainly helps the buyer feel more protected. Mm-hmm. So that's a big step. And, and we know there's a lot more happening as far as mobile ticketing. You know, paper tickets are becoming less and less. Yeah. And they're starting to transfer them to phones. And, um, you know, the next step is to attach that ticket to the specific phone. So there's more of like an identity with the barcode. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ticketmaster recently purchased a, a blockchain company, and there's actually a number of blockchain ticketing companies getting started to try to put some validity to the history chain of a ticket purchase hmm. to see the original price and to see how many times it was bought and sold up the line. That's interesting. Yeah, so there's a lot of advancements. I mean, there's even a company trying to do a facial recognition entry. So as you walk into the show, it snaps a picture of your face and determines that you're the owner of the ticket. Uh, (laughs) It's getting crazy. Cerebral spinal fluid is next. Yeah, it is. (laughs) It is getting a little, little wild there, you know? (laughs) Um, But basically like to just circle back on this, Dusty and I sitting in our house in 2009, having done web design for so long and being fans, you know, decided that it was time, it was time for a change. And we decided that or realized that there wasn't a a place for real fans to connect with one another and to buy, sell and trade tickets at face value. And uh, it just is more of corporate level ticketing. We knew that there was this 
you know, underground level of real fan bases um, working together to provide each other with tickets. So it was February of 2009. And in about a week, we built cash or trade for your extra.com and uh, put that up online before the Hampton shows of fish. And uh, it got a lot of great response. So come May, we hopped in our truck, brought her laptops, brought an easy up, had a banner made, and uh, we set up at every show on the summer tour, starting at Fenway Park. Mm. And we hung up a bulletin board with paper slips as our low-tech version, where people could fill out a, a slip saying their trade, whether they have cash or whether they have a ticket for a ticket. And they'd put their email and phone number and they'd stick it on the bulletin board. And we found more and more people were gathering at the trading tent, as we called it, to find tickets, but to also, uh, they'd connect on the website and then meet up at the tent to kind of have a safe meeting spot to meet up and trade. And it was getting a lot of great support. And by the end of the summer, we had 5,000 users. Wow. And um, we felt like we really had something. And, uh, you know, we continued the web design company all these years. And this was always just a side hobby. But eventually, when it got to 100,000 users, I was like, okay, it's, it's, time to, it's time to do something here. So we sold the web design company. And I, I turned full-time to Cash or Trade in uh, January 2017. We have 160,000 users. Wow. Roughly 20. 500 users sign up each month. So it's got some traction. Word of mouth is big. Uh, We've done limited to no marketing other than what we manually put in on social media. But we have members from every state in the nation and from 20 countries. And people have posted tickets to over 3,000 artists. And uh, they're doing it for face value. Which is crazy. It's Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, in in our research and in all our history of going to shows and all of this and running cash or trade, you know, we've realized that about one third of the industry are brokers and the rest are just real people. Yeah. And we noticed that unless you sought or unless you went out to purchase a ticket with the intent to profit at the beginning. Mm hmm. Everyone else who didn't do that is happy to just pass it along to someone who values the experience as they do and to gain a good review in the process, which helps them score tickets in the future. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've seen it uh, on social media. More and more people are posting face value tickets to their friends and friends of friends instead of going to the secondary reseller sites. Mm-hmm. Um, that charge both the buyer and the seller. Right, right. So if you want to get your money back, not only do you have to mark it up above face value because of the fees, you're actually sitting there competing with like very sophisticated brokers who are using like pricing software that scours the internet and helps find like the highest possible price that they could post their ticket at. And, you know, we find that you end up playing businessman a little bit. Yeah. You know, husband buys $600 worth of tickets to a show. Wife's friend ends up having a wedding. You have to be there. (laughs) You know, both of them are bummed, but they have to sell their tickets. Mm -hmm. This, this couple is not super interested in the two weeks they have to go on to a secondary site and play businessman adjusting their price, noticing that they're running out of time and that now there's only a few days left and oops, they're hard tickets. So now you have to mail them, which means you're running out of even more time. Right. And frankly, this type of person, what we found, this type of fan, just like you and I and anyone else is just like, here you go, man. Have a great time. 600 bucks back. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> you know, seriously. Yeah. I didn't lose money on this. Yeah. Right. I didn't just eat these. And uh, sweet. You want to give me a great review saying that I'm a trustworthy 
member of this community and that I hooked you up with great seats, great. That's just going to help me when I'm looking for a ticket next time. Yeah. And that's what happens. Yeah, that part of it is absolutely what kind of sets it apart from everything else. And I'm sure at first it was a much smaller kind of community. But like you said, with the number of artists that are now being included within that, it's definitely expanding into like normalcy, I guess. Like I wouldn't know how else to put that. You know, it's not just a jam band community or whatever. Like you are getting other artists, venues, et cetera, Mm -hmm. through that. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we started off in the fish community and, you know, soon thereafter expanded into, you know, widespread panic and and Dave Matthews band and other bands generally in the jam scene. But it's grown to include artists such as Justin Timberlake and Lady Gaga and Taylor Swift. Obviously, there's a lot more of jam band music on there right now, but we do have plans to expand into more genres. Not only that, we've been, we just realized that, you know, the ability for this to help sports fans is tremendous. Absolutely. Comedy, theater, really, really any kind of ticket that has a barcode on it. There's people, families who purchase a week's vacation in Aspen, including hotel rooms and, you know, find out they can't go you know, uh, things like that. This this becomes a marketplace for those types of transactions to occur uh, where people are looking to just get their money back, looking to provide transparency in the marketplace by having a face, validating some personal information with the system, having the reviews to read up on. And then the social side, seeing what friends they have or mutual friends you may have in common, um, maybe some photos that they've posted at shows. And and we've truly found that Cash or Trade has become a social network. Fans are meeting up and becoming friends and having a beer before or after the show or at set break. Mm-hmm. We even met a couple last New Year's who met on Cash or Trade. Really? They had trade tickets and, you know, was psyched about it, became friends and kept talking and traded a couple more times. And then they started dating after seeing each other at shows. And mm-hmm. down the line, they ended up getting married. And they came running up to me at, I think it was the 30th in Madison Club at MSG to tell me their story. And, uh, huh. you know, it's just it's just awesome. I mean, we're, we're just like honored to be a part of it. Yeah, Dusty and I feel like we created something programmatically that is the start i mean granted you know we understand that it's it's not perfect and we have plans to make it better and our fans have helped us identify ways in which we can make it better but it's really the community that has made it what it is you know it's really the people coming together Mm -hmm. who are willing to pass these tickets along and to do it in good faith and to uh to gain the credibility and and frankly create what we believe to be a face value movement against the current practices in the ticketing industry and 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 for an alternative it kind of oddly works out i suppose that when we decided to create this we looked at the three largest sites like craigslist ebay and facebook and we were like let's mm-hmm. let's pull those together uh, so we did the chronological listings of Craigslist. We did the review system and and the checkout like eBay. And uh, we brought in the social aspect of Facebook, uh, having you know the profile photos and the friends. And it just so turns out that that model is super effective for a peer to peer alternative to a lot of industries, Airbnb mm-hmm. and Uber just being two of them obviously ebay and these these companies have you know disrupted these industries and provided a major alternative airbnb didn't stop hotel rooms and uber didn't stop taxis and we don't believe that we're going to put any stop or or necessary dent in stubhub 
But what we do realize is that there's a large part of the market that is happy to use an alternative. And, uh, and, and that's where cash or trade comes in. Yeah, it's you guys like kind of digitized rec.music. Rec. <laughs> I mean, in a way, like obviously it's not just a news group, but you piece together what we all did for so long with tangible things of music to make it kind of that for going to concerts instead and sure. events and whatnot. Yeah, I personalized it because I think that's really what's missing. Yeah a lot in the secondary market is that there's no personalization around those tickets. And therefore in an industry that's already lacking in trust drastically, yeah, yeah. putting a face and personalizing it really helps somebody say, okay, like this guy's got 20 reviews. Like he knows how to use this site. Like he's been good to people. Yeah. Let's do this. You know? So, you know, all those tools that we provide, as well as some plans we have to integrate payment and um, provide uh, transfer options as the technology grows through cash or trade. You know, we have greater plans to increase protections and security and, and to offer more insurance uh, to users with like money back guarantees and, and that sort of thing. It's pretty awesome what you guys have built. Thank you. I mean, like, and like I said, though, you know, like it is the people who are doing it. Mm -hmm. So honestly, we feel equally as part of it as, as the guy I'm standing next to who just sold his floor tickets to New Year's Eve. Yeah. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing. So you have done all this and you are also a dad. Yeah. (laughs) We kind of, this is becoming the footnote, really. Nothing against your kids. I uh, strayed a bit. (laughs) I do that. No, it's okay. I just wanted to, you know, say that is a huge thing. You know, a lot of this has been the story of you and your brother and rings very true to me because my brother and I are 16 months apart. Oh, nice. We are extremely close. We are concert hoppers together. You know, we go all over and go and see fish and go and see the dead and so on and so forth. So a lot of that definitely resonates with me. And I know how much having kids changes all of that and can, in both ways, you know, can make you busier and can uh, take away from some of your ability to do as much together, but can also definitely add a ton to your relationship and being able to be the uncle as well as the dad, etc. So how many kids do you have? Tell me a little bit about some of that. And and is Dusty also in that same boat? Yes. So mid-2015, well, slightly before that, um, well, how should I say this? Uh, let's see. I got married uh, in 2013. Uh, Dusty got married shortly after that. Mm. His wife had two children. And then he had a third on the way in summer 2015. And uh, it was sort of at that point that we had some crossroads where he found a great job uh, on the web dev team for Ben and Jerry's. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he he works there now and uh, has gained some great experience working with a social brand on a global scale. And it was sort of at that time where we ended up selling the web design company and you know, moved towards cash or trade full time. And uh, shortly after that, I had a, a son myself. So um, mm. Leo is about uh, 20 months now. And um, oh, wow. So fresh. Yeah. He's great and it's awesome. It has been a bit difficult juggling an entrepreneurial lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, my wife is a jewelry artist. So the two of us trying to run businesses and just sort of juggle time amongst the two of us. Mm-hmm. He's not in daycare yet. So we've just been trying to hammer that out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not easy, but I think we got a system going and the little guy's awesome. So <laughs> he's been inundated with music and we've noticed yeah. that he sort of has an ear for it. I've been playing guitar to him 
since he was born. And uh, he loves to play the guitar himself and tries to sing a song, which is super cute. Yeah, it, it's been interesting. It's, you know, it's a juggle trying to, you know, cash or trade is, is a baby in itself. Yeah. I would say one of the largest struggles we have is that when you work for yourself, it like inundates your everyday life. So, and then Mm -hmm. bringing a mobile device into the game uh, makes it so Mm -hmm. you're getting emails, texts, tweets, Instagrams, Facebook messages constantly all the time involving the business, whether it's cash or trade or my wife's jewelry business, Jennifer Kahn jewelry. I I think that's the biggest struggle is that like it can be evening and and we're still like bringing work home yeah, and trying to have that separation to stay focused with him, but also trying to like move something forward that in a lot of ways is on the prep precipice of like the next step. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that's the juggle, the hard part. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we're about 20 minutes apart, so it's nice for them to hang out with the cousins. And then how far are your parents from you guys? Uh, well, my parents were in New Hampshire for a long time, but they moved to Florida. Oh, okay. So that's a bit tough. Yeah. We try to see each other when we can. Uh, they fly up a lot now that we have the kids. But yeah, that is a tough thing. Mm-hmm. It would certainly be nice to see them more often. We face them a lot. Yeah, I was just going to say, one of the pros of technology for grandparents. Sure. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your extremely, extremely busy world and life out there, Brando. Thank you. I'm really appreciative of your time. I'm glad that we finally made this work. I know that the Osiris Podcast Network is excited as well for us to be doing this because I know you guys did some work with Osiris very early on with some spots on some of the other podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. It's very exciting what they're doing. You know, we're happy to be a part of it when we can. Um, excited to do more. I think it's a really cool idea. Uh, it's sort of like needed around this time and it really pulls communities together in the digital space. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It's, it's fun to, it's fun to talk about it. All right, and that ends my conversation with Brando Rich of cashortrade.org. My heartfelt appreciation and large, sizable, significant thank you to Brando for making that happen on a Saturday in his busy world to take that time out. I really do appreciate it. We had a great conversation and it was really cool hearing all of that story and especially things that really did resonate with me. And I hope they also resonated with all of you. Again, you can find Cash or Trade on the web at cashortrade.org. You can find them on Twitter. Their username is just like it sounds, Cash or Trade. And again, their hashtag and their motto is fantastic. It's embrace the face, which is talking about face value, which is just a crazy idea for people to only pay face value for tickets. Can you imagine what a game changer that is? So I'm very excited to have had this conversation. You can find Daddy Unscripted on the internet at daddyunscripted.com. You can also find Daddy Unscripted on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, all as Daddy Unscripted. You can send me an email at daddyunscripted at gmail.com. I did say to Brando, much like I say to all my other guests, and like I remind you guys, if there is anybody that you want me to have on the show, drop me an email at that daddyunscripted at gmail.com or send me a message on Twitter or on Facebook. Put them in a mention on something, whatever. But the guest train that has continued to keep on moving is 98% fueled by social media. So I'm so appreciative of all your help with that. And for you guys giving me suggestions and introducing me to other people to have on, etc. It's fantastic. And I really do thank you. So you can find me on all those places online. And now I will say, 
Wodakidanchon Jungaman Shayu, which is my hovercraft. Sorry. My hovercraft is full of eels in Mandarin. I was looking up how to say goodbye, and for some reason that phrase is there, so I felt like that was more fitting for me to say goodbye to you guys. So thank you so much for listening, and keep your eye out for the next episode in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.